0: Micah Utrecht from Jacobin here. This is the first episode of Doug Hedman's radio show, Behind the News, hosted on Jacobin Radio. We're very excited to host his show, which is, in my opinion, one of the best radio shows out there. Nobody does as many interviews with left writers and activists on as wide a range of subjects from all over the world as Doug. Also, his theme song is constantly stuck in my head, and it'll probably be stuck in yours, too. Here's Doug.
1: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. In moments, we'll hear from Steffi Woolhandler and Republican efforts to repeal Obamacare. And at the bottom of the hour, Chinzia Uruzza will talk about the March 8th women's strike. First, Steffi Woolhandler. She is a primary care doctor and one of our leading experts in health care finance. She teaches at Hunter College and was one of the founders of Physicians for a National Health Program. She's here to tell us all about Republican efforts to transform the health insurance landscape for the worse, the shortcomings of Obamacare, and the prospects for single payer. Steffi Woolhandler. Welcome, Steffi. So, uh, what are your first impressions, or maybe our last impressions, of Ryan Care?
2: Ryan Care uh, is supposed to uh, take away health insurance from 24 million Americans. That, in itself, is a reason to oppose it. They're taking care away from 24 million Americans and using the money that they save from doing that to give massive tax cuts to the wealthiest 2% of Americans. Over the next decade, there'll be about $275 billion in uh, tax cuts uh, to people earning above $200,000 a year. That's the wealthiest 2% of families.
1: It doesn't really get much more naked than that, does it?
2: No, it really doesn't. There's some additional tax cuts, smaller tax cuts thrown in there for the uh, drug companies, for the insurance companies, for the device manufacturers, for the tanning studios. Uh, But this is really a giant tax cut paid for by the American people, paid for by poor people who are going to see their Medicaid cut, paid for by working poor who are getting... Uh, subsidies under the Obamacare legislation are going to see their subsidies cut way back. Uh, paid for, in fact, by seniors in the Medicare program, there's no cut, uh, direct cut. However, the way the taxes are structured, there's going to be a large cut in the amount of money going into the Medicare trust funds, both Part A and Part B, uh, threatening the financial future of the Medicare program.
1: Now, is there a theory behind what the Republican proposal is? Is it some kind of free market approach to health care that's supposed to make some kind of sense in their alternative universe, or is it just a naked grab for resources?
2: Well, it is a naked grab for resources, but the idea of the repeal of Obamacare uh, was very attractive to many of the Republicans because um, Obamacare did include some taxes on wealthier Americans as well as smaller taxes on corporations. A lot of the uh, way the bill developed and why it's so uh, weird and jury-rigged, if you will, uh, is because uh, the Republicans know they can't pass it through 60 votes in the Senate, which is what they would need to fully repeal the Obamacare legislation. So uh, they were stuck writing a bill that's all about money and not about regulation per se, because uh, bills that are all about money can be passed through 50 votes under a process called reconciliation. So part of the weirdness of the bill is that issue. However, the overall thrust of the bill that we're going to rob from the poor and give to the rich, a kind of reverse Robin Hood effect, is uh, the whole idea behind a lot of what the Republican Congress has been proposing, and a lot of what uh, Trump and the Republican Congress have been doing since the last election.
1: The Republicans love health savings accounts. Could you describe what they're all about?
2: Well, health savings accounts um, are something like an extra IRA. Uh, You can put money in and save it up for later. And uh, like IRAs, which people use for retirement, health savings accounts are much more attractive to people in high tax brackets and they get a much bigger tax benefit from making the uh, savings deposits tax deductible because the bracket's higher previously there were limits on uh, health savings account contributions that were relatively low nonetheless wealthy people use them a lot they'd go to their tax advisor and they'd say well throw some money in this health savings account and you get a big tax break now they're going to allow uh, people to put much more money into the health savings account so it's an even bigger tax break for people in high
1: brackets. But how can people possibly accumulate enough money to meet substantial health expenses? People who barely can afford to pay insurance, or insurance premiums, but somehow they're able to going to be able to save the money to, uh, to meet these bills?
2: People who have high deductible health plans now through their employers, all of those people are currently eligible to put money in a health savings account, but only wealthy people are putting money into those accounts. Lower-income people simply uh, don't have the cash to put into the health savings account. Uh, And even if they did, the tax break for them is relatively small because of their low tax bracket. Conversely, a rich person has the cash to put in the savings account. And, uh, you know, if you're in a 39% uh, tax bracket, uh, then there's a big tax benefit to you in uh, being able to put money into that savings account tax-free.
1: Are there any Republican proposals different from Ryan's or is there anything that's floating around that they could possibly pass or if this falls on its face they're they're out of uh, out of it?
2: Well, Ryan had a proposal that was called the Republican Alternative that he released last summer and Tom Price, who was in the House of Representatives the House of Representatives at the time, endorsed that proposal. Uh, it was frankly very similar to this uh, recent bill that uh, ryan came up with
1: so this looks pretty dead uh, unless uh they just ram it through well actually it may not even get it probably couldn't get through the senate so they'd have a very difficult time ramming it through there so so where are we now
2: i'm not sure what's going to happen to this bill legislatively certainly they're getting a lot of opposition from uh, their right in the republican party which may make it impossible to pass this bill the Affordable Care Act uh, made some modest improvements in the health care system, um, was good in that it helped 20 million people get some coverage, but it was never a very good bill. It really did not deal with the problem of high deductibles and high out-of-pocket spending. It left 26 million people completely uninsured, which is uh, not universal health care. And it did strengthen the position of the private health insurance industry because essentially all of the new federal spending on the bill was funneled through the private health insurance companies, either as subsidies for the purchase of private policies on the exchanges or through the Medicaid program. Essentially all of the new Medicaid expansion was implemented through private managed care plans. So, the private insurance industry is extremely wasteful. They have overhead that runs uh, 13 to 20 percent of premium, meaning that uh, you would pay a dollar in premiums and only get uh, between uh, 80 and 87 cents back as care. The rest of the money would stay at the insurance company for their overhead and profits. So, it's always very wasteful to be trying to expand coverage through the private insurance industry, and, of course, that's what the ACA was doing. Obviously, the ACA is a much better bill than this Republican replacement, and I'm happy that uh, 20 million people got coverage. That's great. But it was never a full solution to the problems in the U.S. health care system.
1: You said there, I'd like you to develop this point, that uh, the new Medicaid uh, beneficiaries uh, are uh, on some sort of private managed care system. I don't think that point has been widely disseminated enough. Uh, what, What kind of arrangement are they under?
2: There's these private Medicaid managed care companies and states contract with these private managed care companies to provide services to Medicaid, particularly the share of Medicaid that's poor families. There's About two-thirds of Medicaid spending actually goes to disabled and elderly people, but one-third of it, the stuff we hear about the most, goes to poorer families. And essentially all of the new coverage was, in fact, delivered through these private managed care companies, which are, in fact, private insurance companies, on contract with state Medicaid programs.
1: And uh, speaking of this sort of thing, uh, the new director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services worked with uh, a Pence in Indiana. Uh, What did she do there? uh, I know the Republicans like what she did with Medicaid, and even some Democrats said some kind words for it. What was that all about?
2: Seema Verma is a consultant who worked for Mike Pence, and uh, she implemented a very uh, punitive Medicaid expansion. The expansion forced enrollees to make a payment into a medical savings account, And uh, if they neglected to make a payment, either because they forgot or they couldn't afford it, then they were thrown off of the Medicaid program and couldn't re-enroll for several months, or they were forced to make big co-payments every time they went to see a doctor. And, of course, poor people often don't have money in their pockets to make the co-payments. So it was very punitive. I mean, if we think about our own paying of bills, uh, you know, we have bank accounts and money and um, stable home addresses, and many of us occasionally miss a payment on something. But if a poor person who may not have a stable income or stable home or a bank account missed one of these payments, uh, they were punished by having their health care taken away. And now that punitive attitude toward uh, poor sick people is being brought into Washington uh, with Mike Pence, who was the governor when, in Indiana when this was implemented, and Seema Verma, who wrote up the plan and designed it uh, at Mike Pence's behest.
1: So can we expect that they're going to try to uh, sneak these strategies into uh, um, Medicaid nationwide?
2: Well, they don't need to, to sneak them in. They're going to allow states to pretty much do whatever they want through the block grants so uh, states where they have punitive attitudes toward poor people where they have uh, racist attitudes if you will toward part of the population the governments in those states are going to be free to do whatever sort of punitive and unfair uh, Medicaid programs they want through the block grants I mean previously the federal government did have rules about this that prevented states from misbehaving the way Indiana misbehaved, but the Obama administration decided to relax those rules in order to persuade Indiana to accept the Obamacare Medicaid expansion.
1: I'm speaking with uh, Steffi Woolhandler, who is uh, one of the co-founders of the Physicians for a National Health Program and uh, who also teaches at Hunter College in New York. It seems now that the Affordable Care Act has never had so many friends. Now it's about to be taken away. Let's evaluate that thing.
2: The more that people see the Republican alternative, the better the Affordable Care Act seems to look. And I personally think we need to be building on the Affordable Care Act and going forward to a single payer Medicare for all program. We definitely don't want to be moving backward to the Ryan Care or Trump Care proposal that's out there that would take health care away from 24 million Americans, and use that money to give a tax windfall to wealthy Americans. That's a very, very bad, bad idea, and even the Obamacare legislation, warts and all, starts to look very good when faced with that Republican alternative.
1: Now, a lot of the roots of Obamacare come from the right. You know, there's the uh, Stuart Butler at Heritage, uh, Romney in Massachusetts, so that was somewhat bipartisan. Um, could you talk about that intellectual heritage of Obamacare?
2: Well, the framework for the Obamacare legislation was first put forward in 1971 by then-President Richard Nixon. Uh, he proposed an Obamacare-like program to counter the single-payer legislation being introduced by then-Senator Ted Kennedy. The idea was further fleshed out by the Heritage Foundation in a 1989 book, and then the idea was first implemented uh, in the state of Massachusetts by then-Governor Mitt Romney, when Obama started working on health reform uh, soon after his election, he asked the Senate to convene a committee, and the, the original committee was called the Gang of Six because it had three Republicans and three Democrats on the committee that sat down and actually wrote this piece of legislation. Ultimately, the Republicans decided to abandon the effort and refuse to vote for it. Nonetheless, sort of the fingerprints of this effort to make a bipartisan consensus between the Republicans and Democrats are still all over that bill. And the, the Obamacare structure largely adopted the structure put forward by Nixon, which was expanding Medicaid for the poor, subsidies to allow lower-income, non-poor people to buy into a public program, and a mandate that everyone had to have coverage. That basic structure has been around since Nixon. Uh, The Democrats did put a lot of more progressive financing into the bill. For instance, the taxes on wealthier people was a, a large part of the financing subsidies and Obamacare are relatively generous if you're, you know, right around the poverty level, right, uh, 139% of poverty, if you will, where you just miss the Medicaid cutoff. In fact, those subsidies are pretty generous for you and will pay for most of the cost of your plan. They're a whole lot less generous as you go up the income scale. So someone Earning 250% of the poverty level, you're still not very rich, okay? But 250% of the poverty level, the subsidies fall way down. And then when you're at 400% of poverty, they disappear. So 400% of poverty is around $50,000. Again, that's not rich, but uh, you, you lose out on the subsidies under Obamacare. The Democrats did take this Republican structure and put a more progressive kind of financing into it, and, and they put some other good stuff, too. For instance, the mandate that insurance companies would have to cover preventive care, including contraception. So all of the Republicans would like to get rid of all of those progressive elements, to get rid of the progressive financing, obviously get rid of the reproductive rights uh components, uh, but keep the basic structure, that is, that all of the government money going into uh, coverage expansion is going to flow through private health insurance companies.
1: So it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing that uh, essentially the Democrats have become Nixon Republicans and the Republicans themselves have become absolute troglodytes.
2: I think that's one way of putting it, that's for sure. <laughs> uh,
1: and what's happened to employer-sponsored uh, health insurance uh, over the last uh, few years?
2: There is an employer mandate under the Obamacare legislation, uh, which particularly affects large employers. Uh, they do have to pay a modest fine if they uh, fail to offer insurance to their employees. Doesn't have to be very good insurance, and the employer doesn't have to pay a very large share. Uh, of the premium but the employers do have to offer something or pay a fine and similarly individuals uh, are obligated to have insurance or else they pay a fine so there's actually been a bit of an increase uptake in employer-sponsored coverage not huge okay but but a small increase among people who were offered coverage and might have been debating whether to take it or not more of them have been taking the coverage However, that's not what the coverage expansions under Obamacare really came from. They mostly came from the Medicaid expansion and to a lesser extent from um, uh, people with incomes just above the Medicaid cutoff who uh, got large subsidies through the exchanges.
1: Trump got a lot of mileage uh, through the campaign uh, complaining about rising uh, copays and premiums, you know, and just more cost shifting to uh, consumers having to pay uh, more of the way. He was right at that, wasn't he?
2: Well, certainly um, many, many consumers have huge deductibles and co-payments that uh, mean that they have health insurance that they can't afford to use. So uh, the average employed individual who has employer-sponsored coverage now has a deductible of uh, more than $1,300 dollars meaning you have to take $1,300 out of your pocket when you get sick before your insurance pays one penny. So um, that is unaffordable for many people. It's not unusual for a family to have a deductible uh, of $5,000, even $10,000. So, uh, you know, for many people, you just simply can't afford to use your health insurance. It's already what we call a catastrophic policy that you know, pays the hospital, let's say, if you have a catastrophic illness, but doesn't really give you access to primary care and outpatient services. Um, so that's really true. And that increase in out-of-pocket costs to families uh, began before the Obamacare legislation, but the Obamacare legislation failed to improve it. it the increase in out-of-pocket payments was going on before 2009, but it's continued to go up um, since the passage of the Obamacare legislation. Uh, it's perhaps unfair for Trump to say, gee, Obamacare caused the high deductibles. However, it is also true that Obamacare failed to fix the high deductibles, and uh, the Republicans were able to blame that problem and essentially all of the problems in the health care system many of which predated Obamacare, all of those problems the Republicans were able to blame on the Obamacare legislation.
1: So where does this current situation leave the prospects for single payer, uh, nationally but also, is it also possible at the state level?
2: It's very clear right now that the health care system is not working. The Affordable Care Act uh, is not viewed by the American people as a solution. and was used as a rallying cry by the Republicans to get themselves elected last November. So I think uh, no one can uh, maintain the fantasy any longer that the Affordable Care Act in some ways solved our health care problems. And that's provided much more openness, at least within the health policy community, to discussing Medicare for all and uh, the single-payer alternative. And many people are noting that the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, did popul- popularize the idea of Medicare for All and managed, it was one of many ideas that Sanders popularized. It, nonetheless, his campaign carried 22 states, showing that the idea is, in fact, quite popular. Um, so I do think it's opened more discussion and more possibility for uh, attaining single-payer reform. I'm not expecting to see it in the next two years, that's for sure. But uh, fairly soon, I think there's going to be a real opening of opportunities for advocacy and and winning of a Medicare for All program. Several states have started initiatives to try to uh, achieve universal health care at a state level. Uh, i a big supporter of those efforts some of the states call those efforts single-payer efforts and again i support them and great work is going on but i do want to caution that it is very very difficult to develop an efficient uh, single-payer system if congress is fighting you on it you will not be able to fold medicare into a single-payer system uh, unless you get an act of congress uh, giving you a waiver you will not be able to uh, fold fed, uh, FEHBP that's a federal employees health benefit program that uh, provides health coverage to federal workers you can't fold that into a single-payer without an act of congress and even folding medicaid into a single-payer plan in a state would require a waiver from essentially Tom Price in the Trump administration. So I'm I'm all for people advocating and working at a state level, but I think we need to go into this with our eyes wide open that uh, you're still going to have to fight this battle at a national level in order to get single-payer health insurance.
1: I was Steffi Wohlhandler of Hunter College and Physicians for a National Health Program. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood. Back after a musical break. some of Barquereau, composed in 1913 by Heinz Thiessen, performed by Matthew Rubinstein. On March 8th, International Women's Day, formerly known as International Working Women's Day, there was a global strike in the name of feminism, even here in the U.S., where strikes are little known these days. The combination of the strike and an explicitly left feminist agenda drew some criticism from Hillary-style Democrats and even some people further to the left. It would be too small, too radical, too adventurous to make any kind of political difference. Annoyed by these criticisms and inspired by the call to action, I thought it'd be good to hear from one of the organizers of the U.S. Women's Strike, Chinzi Uruzza, on what they aim to accomplish and where they hope to go with the action. Chinzi Uruzza, who was on this show in December to discuss what American opponents of Trump can learn from Italian opposition to Berlusconi, is an assistant professor of philosophy at the New School of Manhattan. Cinzi Uruzza. So how did this idea for a, a women's strike come up?:
0: the, the idea came up after the um, Polish women's strike and the, and the strikes in uh, women's strikes in, uh, in Argentina. and it was uh, launched by, precisely by the Polish feminist activists. So they were the ones who started working on this project in, in the fall. And, uh, of course, uh, one uh, big motivation to do so uh, was uh, the ex- extraordinary success of the women's strike in Poland that uh, managed to stop the, the abortion ban and to actually give birth uh, to a new feminist movement. And also the success of the women's strikes and uh, demonstrations in uh, Argentina. So in, uh, in January, when we thought of uh, organizing the women's strike, um, then uh, the international organization of the strike was already... Uh, going on so we were uh, actually late in the game and um, the reason why we thought it was possible to to organize this in the United States uh, to do uh, with the the success of the women's marches in uh, in January so we saw that uh, uh, given the enormous mobilization of uh, women in January against uh, Trump's administration there could be uh, some uh, willingness to also engage in a women's strike uh, on a more radical platform.
1: The strike in Poland, uh, although it was inspired by uh, the uh, the abortion ban, it did acquire a broader agenda than that, didn't it?
0: Yes. So they, um, of course, it was uh, the, the the immediate goal was to stop the abortion ban, but uh, the the strike was also against uh, gender violence more in general, uh, and also the especially. After the mobilizations in Argentina, the call for the for the international women's strike uh, had to do um, with the reproductive justice uh, but also with um, violence against women uh, very broadly understood. So for example, uh, it was considered it is considered violence against women, uh, women also uh, econ- economic law violence, so the violence of uh, policies uh, that uh, uh, destroy welfare state. Uh, public services uh, or uh, also the casualization of uh, of labor that impacts especially uh, on uh, women and uh, and it was the concept was also broadened to include uh, state violence uh, in terms for example of uh, migration policies or uh, or wars that clearly affect women uh, in a significant way so and the idea, also in the in launching the the women's strike, was uh, on an international level, was also to uh, give the autonomy to which um, feminist to the various feminist groups in the various uh, countries to actually elaborate their own uh, platform, uh, so to adjust the platform and the demands according to the needs and the concrete situation in each uh, in each country. So the I would say that uh, in general, the um, character of the strike uh, was. Uh, actually much broader than uh, the usual, uh, uh, usual uh, feminist mobilization on, for example, reproductive justice and uh, violence, because uh, it, it, it started uh, addressing issues of racism, uh, colonial wars, and uh, economic policies.
1: And so what was the, uh, the agenda for uh, the U.S. Women's Strike?
0: For the U.S., uh, we, we articulated a very uh, expansive agenda. That included uh, demands concerning uh, the welfare state, for example, uh, universal health care, and um, public uh, uh, services, reproductive services, uh, and uh, also um, a minimum wage of $15 and uh, pay equality. And it is very important to combine the two things because uh, clearly uh, wage equality across genders can be achieved also by compressing uh, uh, male um, wages uh, uh, to the bottom. So um, it is not sufficient to to just demand uh, wage equality. Then um, we had uh, um, a a very strong profile in terms of uh, anti-racism, opposition to white supremacy, uh, opposition to U.S. uh, wars, imperialist wars, uh, and also the opposition to uh, Israel's policies in Palestine. So we demanded for the decolonization of Palestine, which was uh, probably one of the most controversial uh, Demands in our uh, in in our agenda, so in the sense that uh, we have been uh, uh, rather attacked for this uh, for this uh, for this demand that for us was actually a key to our uh, platform, and we also uh, articulated uh, demands concerning uh, uh, support in favor of uh, indigenous women, uh, so standing and especially uh, standing rock. The idea was to have uh, a platform that uh, addressed. Uh, all the various uh, problems that affect women uh, in a different way, differential way, according to class, gender, ethnicity, or race, or. Uh, or ability. Um, so the idea was that uh, uh, we, in order to have a, re- a really universalistic platform, so a, a platform that uh, responded to the demands and needs of uh, um, the large majority of women, we needed to uh, emphasize and to focus uh, on the uh, condition and demands and needs of the most oppressed women. So, which means immigrant women, uh, uh, women of color. Uh, uh, working-class women, because uh, otherwise the risk is uh, to to put forward uh, demands, uh, very generic demands uh, for women's rights that actually d- don't take into account uh, the, the, d- the fundamental differences in uh, uh, conditions of life and social situation uh, of, uh, of the women who live in the country.
1: The Women's March uh, that uh, happened just after Trump's inauguration was criticized for not having any demands at all. And I've heard people criticize your women's strike. Uh, for having too many demands and being too specific and having demands that uh, would alienate a broader constituency. Uh, I guess women can't do anything right, but uh, uh, how do you respond to that critique?
0: First of all, it it is not entirely true that the Women's March did did not have demands. Uh, It is true that they elaborated a platform uh, only in a second moment. Uh, and, and the platform was uh, a relatively progressive platform that included also demands concerning minimum wage um, and uh, social provisioning. Um, clearly, the mobilization of uh, the, the mass mobilization for the women's, women's marches can be explained all, uh, also by the fact that uh, although the platform was there, uh, this was not the main mobilizing factor. The main mobilizing factor was opposition to Trump, which means that the people who participated. Uh, marches uh, participated for, uh, had not necessarily the, the same politics or, uh, or uh, did not uh, necessarily embrace radical uh, uh, left politics, but uh, certainly they shared in common an opposition to Trump. Uh, our platform was uh, certainly more radical and also more articulated, but the, re- the, the reason why we chose to do this uh, was precisely because we wanted to make an intervention in the feminist debate in, in the United States and also in the in the process of uh, rebuilding a feminist movement in the United States. And um, what we wanted to rebuild was precisely a, a class and left perspective within the rebirth of a feminist movement. And in order to do this, we needed to articulate precisely uh, a more complex and more radical platform that uh, would allow us to build a bridge among group, social groups and women working on different uh, issues uh, and um, putting forward different uh, different struggles so the in a sense the platform was also meant to uh, to work as a as a catalyst or in any case to carry on a work of a regroupment of uh, of the various struggles that are um, uh, going on in in, in the country uh, so we, we we were perfectly aware that the clearly the size of of the women's strike would not be the same as the size of the women's marches. This was impossible because, uh, uh, again, the profile of the strike was much more uh, defined uh, and much more on the left. But uh, this was a precise choice because uh, we thought that that, uh, our uh, contribution uh, um, would be significant uh, precisely in uh, uh, delineating uh, uh, leftist uh, current within the feminist movement.
1: And you've also been criticized for using the word "strike," uh, since this was not rooted in traditional union activity, or uh, it was too ambitious. Uh, you were calling a strike that would not have uh, mass participation. Uh, how do you plead on that?
0: Uh, yes, of course. The the most obvious and defensive uh, response could be that uh, we did not invent the the name of the day of action. This was again already called as a women's strike internationally, but. Uh, uh, but this would would be a, a defensive response. Uh, we actually have uh, also a political, <laughs> a more political response, uh, in the sense that uh, appro- reappropriating the term strike for uh, a day of action of a uh, feminist movement had uh, various um, meanings and uh, and played va- various roles. First of all, we wanted to emphasize uh, and uh, to make visible. Uh, the the work uh, the labor that women perform uh, not only in the workplace but also outside of the workplace, so in the sphere of social reproduction, and uh, this is work that is unpaid in most of the cases, but it is not, nonetheless work and should be recognized as such. Um, so this is why the the women's strike is it was very different as a concept from the from a general strike, because it was a strike not only from work in the workplace but also from work. Uh, unpaid work, unpaid labor in, uh, in the outside of the workplace. Uh, secondly, I think the utility and the meaningfulness of using the terrorist strike had also to do with uh, precisely putting forward a uh, um, uh, feminist current uh, and uh, uh, an intervention within the feminist debate emphasizing the fact that women are also workers and, uh, and, uh, and, and, that, uh, and allowing that for women to identify themselves. Uh, not only as women, but also as workers. Um, Thirdly, I think uh, that it is very important to politically uh, re-legitimize the term strike in the United States. This is not a very popular notion, politically speaking. Um, And as a matter of fact, uh, the Women's March, uh, for example, had uh, quite an amount of pushback from their constituency that uh, was challenging the notion of a strike, not uh, from... uh, uh, let's say, the perspective of um, labor organizers, worried uh, that uh, that we are misusing the general strike, but, only f- but actually from the perspective of, of people who do not have any sympathy for the very chairman, the very notion, and the very formal struggle uh, of the strike. So uh, from this viewpoint, I think it, it was very important to reintroduce the notion of strike within the political language uh, in the United States and to re-legitimize it. And finally, we were also hoping to have some strikes in workplaces. And we were perfectly aware that given the labor laws in the United States, these strikes would not be formal strikes. So because labor laws basically prevent uh, workers from organizing political strikes in the States. And and from this viewpoint, it was actually pretty successful because uh, three entire uh, school districts um, closed. On March 8th, and for example, Prince, uh, in, in Prince uh, George's uh, County District, uh, apparently 1,700 teachers uh, asked for a day off, and 30% of, uh, of the transportation staff. So these are these are actually big numbers. Um, so the, the the next step would be then to understand who organized this, because I I, I have I'm skeptical that 1,700 uh, teachers decide to. Take a day off without having any fo- any kind of even informal network or, organi- or organization. But uh, I think the fact that the three district schools uh, shut down uh, show that there is a disp- there is some willingness and readiness to uh, take some more radical actions on the workplace, and uh, and this is a very important signal for uh, for working on uh, organizing in the in the workplace.
1: I'm speaking with Chinzia Urutsu, who teaches philosophy at the New School and who is one of the organizers of the March 8 Women's Strike. I'm sorry to keep reciting criticisms of your action, but uh, <laughs> another one is that, uh, that you had no sympathy for women who are tenuously employed, who would just it would be too risky for them to strike, and uh, you know how could you have the nerve to ask they walk out when they could lose their jobs as a result?
0: Well, first of all, we didn't uh, we didn't ask women to um, walk out. Uh, uh, and lose their job, uh, we actually asked women to strike, to organize a strike in the workplace where they thought that the, the conditions were in place to do so. Um, but the idea that we shouldn't call for a women's strike because this would be a pre, uh, uh, an action for privileged women, because only privileged women can strike, it is not only f- offensive to working class and uh, and migrant uh, women and women of color, it is extremely patronizing. And it is also anti-historical in the sense that, uh, first of all, um, precisely the most uh, vulnerable uh, women in terms of uh, social status, uh, race, uh, or citizenship status are the ones who have played a crucial role uh, in all the mobilizations of, uh, of of recent years. And, uh, and in doing so, they clearly have faced uh, a number of risks. Um, so the idea that we should have some form of uh, patronizing attitude uh, towards them, uh, uh, telling them what they can or they cannot do is, uh, in my view, extremely offensive. And it, it doesn't really take into account the fact that the, the, the protagonism and the agency of these women who can decide for themselves uh, the risk they can take or uh, or they cannot take. But in addition to this, uh, this um, this criticism of um, this claim that the strike was for privileged women and this kind of criticism was waged especially uh, by um, feminists who have supported Hillary Clinton's campaign and uh, who tended then uh, to to suggest that a uh, a more uh, effective form of protest would be to call uh, uh, democratic representatives. So um, I think that the real political um, intention behind this kind of accusation, behind this kind of criticism, actually uh, was actually that of downplaying uh, a potentially radical action uh, taken by women, and and, and, and the attempt to uh, to identify in the Democratic Party the interlocutor who. And the, fo- the political force that actually will say, will solve our problems. And clearly, our day of action was uh, precisely <laughs> to, to state the opposite that uh, we cannot expect uh, to be saved from Trump by, uh, by the Democratic Party. We need to take action uh, ourselves. And by the way, we need to take action not only against Trump, but uh, in general against uh, neoliberal po- and racist policies. Uh, Uh, even when they are uh, uh, carried out by the Democratic Party.
1: You used a phrase a little while ago, political strike, and uh, people are more familiar with economic strikes, more conventional kind of strike, but uh, what is a political strike exactly, and what are the relations between that and an economic strike?
0: This is a concept that is uh, not familiar in the States, precisely because there are no political strikes, or there are very few, and uh, they are not formal. Political strikes, but political, you know, in a number of countries, political strikes are perfectly allowed, and um, they are strikes that uh, do not have at uh, their core uh, a specific economic demand uh, related to um, the renewal of a contract of uh, of a negotiation on a workplace. Uh, but uh, uh, can be strike, for example, strikes, for example, against uh, general uh, policies uh, carried out by a government. Uh, this can go from the reform of the pension system. For example, one of the biggest uh, general strikes in Italy was against uh, in '94 against uh, Berlusconi's uh, reform of the pension system, with the uh, participation of millions of, uh, of workers, and this was decisive in uh, um, in the fall, for the fall of, uh, of, Berlu- of the first Berlusconi's government. So a political strike. Uh, has uh, usually as a direct counterpart the government rather than an individual employer uh, or uh, an economic measure within a specific workplace or within a specific uh, company. Um, So in this sense, clearly the women's strike was a political strike. It was not an economic strike because it was a strike based on a political platform and clearly addressed against a government.
1: Let me take a little uh, theoretical detour for a moment before uh, asking the final where-you-going are you going question. It seems that reactionary governments, you mentioned Poland, and it has one of those, uh, and the Trump administration, reactionary governments seem to have a special place in their heart for misogyny. Um, is that uh, a correct perception?
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, and by the way, uh, unfortunately, in recent years, what we have seen, uh, and this is also why it is so important to rearticulate articulate uh, clearly Left feminism, uh, not only in the states but worldwide. In recent years, we we have also witnessed uh, the co optation of parts of the feminist discourse by conservative uh, and uh, reactionary and racist governments. For example, uh, um, in the Islamophobic policies are. uh, are very often justified on the basis of pseudo-feminist discourses. Um, But uh, the appropriation of these uh, pseudo-feminist discourses clearly also hides the fact that uh, the concrete policies carried out by uh, conservative governments usually uh, target women um, very specifically uh, through, for example, policies uh, concerning reproductive rights and reproductive justice, particularly abortion, but also target women on, uh, also on a social-economic level uh, by uh, destroying, for example, welfare state or uh, public, public um, provisioning. Certainly misogyny, both implicit in the policies carried on and uh, explicit in uh, the statements of, of uh, you know, political figures uh, such as Trump or Berlusconi um, at the time of Berlusconi's government, uh, are clearly part of, uh, of um, conservative politics.
1: It seems like a lot of uh, men on the left... Well, not a lot. I don't know exactly how many. It's hard to say exactly how many. But there there was a critique that uh, there was something wrong with uh, singling out women, having this be a women's strike and not something that included men. Uh, is uh, How do you react to that?
0: I, I'm not sure there were... I mean, uh, honestly, I, I in the organization of the women's strike, we had the help and support of a lot of men, <laughs> of a lot of male activists. So I'm not sure how... Um, Strong disposition he is uh, in the left. It is very vocal on social media. I, I'm not sure how much it really represents uh, a widespread feeling or uh, or or uh, opposition among uh, men on the left. So I would be more optimistic from this viewpoint. That said, uh, um, I think that the the accusation is absurd in the sense that uh, there is the tendency to think that uh, uh, by um, emphasizing struggles on. Uh, Issues that uh, um, are key, especially for sectors of the working class, for example, race. Uh, one uh, um, one then uh, gives up uh, uh, about uh, universalistic uh, political projects. Uh, I would say that it is the other way around. Of course, there is a risk of uh, you know falling into a kind of identity politics that makes solidarity and. Uh, and uh, universalistic politics uh, uh, impossible. And we have we have seen this in uh, in the last two decades. However, I don't think that the the response, the correct political response to this, is to then uh, suggest that we should make abstraction from uh, from differences and hierarchies that are uh, in any case produced by capitalism and that actually do divide the working class. On the contrary, I think that uh, the only way to achieve uh, a truly universalistic political project of transformation of social relations is by uh, identifying uh, these uh, hierarchies, these differences, and by articulating uh, demands and uh, critiques that are specific to to these different conditions. Uh, And so from this viewpoint, I would suggest that uh, we will achieve uh, a truly universalistic politics when we will be ma- we will manage to combine together uh, all uh, the various uh, demands and perspectives and critiques that uh, um, relate to these uh, various positions within the uh, the social structure. And this is actually what we try to do with the women's strike. Um, so the women's strike was not based on uh, a strong notion of identity, but rather uh, pointed. Um, to the uh, necessity of uh, building uh, solidarity uh, and uh, building a bridge among uh, uh, various women. uh, For example, Muslim women, black women, uh, uh, immigrant women from uh, uh, South America or Central America, working class women and so on. But the the way to do this was uh, not by hiding the differences and so on, but actually by combining together the various demands in a single platform.
1: Yeah, I think the underlying message is, shut up, your time will come, right?
0: Yeah, I must say that uh, if I can uh, um, just add the last comment, uh, I must say, I, again, I think this is a social media phenomenon because in actual organizing, uh, we we had a lot of solidarity from uh, men the, on the left. At the same time, I must say that uh, if, uh, if March 8th had been, uh, you know, just uh, an international day of action and mobilization uh, um, not on a, on a feminist platform, it would have been welcomed just with, you know, enormous enthusiasm and, uh, and joy. Uh, and the fact that uh, it was a feminist international mobilization, uh, I think, explains uh, part, a large part of the uh, of the critics that uh, we received. This is very unfortunate, f- unfortunate. At the same time, once again, I do think that this is just uh, a minority of uh, uh, of internet leftists, so we can uh, we can also ignore this uh, this
1: phenomenon. I hope you're right on that one. Uh, finally, you didn't conceive this as a one-off thing, right? This is a, uh, you're, you're still continuing. There will be more events, more organizing in the future, correct? Yes. So
0: we have just decided that we want to continue working together on a national level uh, because we, for us, this experience was. Uh, absolutely positive uh, and, uh, and uh, from all viewpoints, also from the viewpoint of the capacity of wor- working together and, and uh, building solidarity and trust and cooperation among uh, organizers who would never work together uh, previously. And, um, and we have identified May, May Day as the next uh, big um, national mobilizations uh, that we want to contribute uh, to, to build. So. Uh, the idea is uh, to try to, uh, to, to build a very strong uh, left feminist uh, participation in, uh, in May Day mobilizations.
1: And uh, you have a little bit more time to organize for May Day than you did for this one. So uh, people who want to get involved, uh, how could they uh, sign up?
0: So they can write to us. We have a website, uh, www.womenstrikeus.org. And um, they can send us an email. And we are also creating a database of local contacts. Uh, and, um, and hopefully, therefore, we will also have, uh, be able to provide a network of uh, activists on, uh, on a national level that, uh, can, uh, who can then be reference points uh, for those who want to get uh, involved and get organized and, uh, and, uh, and participate.
1: That was Cinzia Urruzza, an assistant professor of philosophy at the New School and one of the organizers of the March 8th Women's Strike. That web address again is womenstrikeus.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Dynamite by Monotectoni, a stage name for the German musician Tonya Rhee, from the 2007 album Love Your Neighbor, No Thanks. Till next week, bye. me.